Chapter 2, verse 2. Yahweh responds to that now. Write down this message. Record it legibly on tablets so that the one who announces it may read it easily. For the message is a witness to what is decreed. It gives reliable testimony about how matters will turn out. Even if the message is not fulfilled right away, wait patiently. For it will certainly come to pass. It will not arrive too late. Look, the one who desires are not upright will faint from exhaustion. But the person of integrity will live because of his faithfulness. Indeed, wine will betray the proud, relentless man. His appetite is as big as Sheol, the grave. Like death, he is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations. He sees all the peoples. What God basically says is, write this down. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And what I say is reliable and true. And it will come to pass because I say it. Now, we've already heard that in the prophets before Habakkuk. So he's making sure that this will come. And then he gets to chapter 2, verse 4. He says this, the righteous will live by faith. Now, that's a very, very, very famous verse that a lot of people have memorized. And that's the way that we've often read it. And I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just, so this appears in basically Romans and Habakkuk. So in Romans and Habakkuk, this phrase appears, the righteous will live by faith, appears three times in the Bible. And in Habakkuk, in Romans, they're using it in a completely different way than it is used in Habakkuk. Okay, so Paul uses it in Romans, and the author of Hebrews uses it in Hebrews. And they're taking it from Habakkuk, but they are using it in a drastically different way. So when Paul comes along, he's using it to emphasize um, righteousness. That salvation comes through righteousness. And the emphasis is on how is one to find salvation in Christ. And you place your faith in Christ, and that produces righteousness in you. And therefore, the righteous will get to heaven. They will live. They will enter eternal life. That's the emphasis. How does one become saved? Only when they are righteous, because only the righteous can enter heaven. And so Paul is emphasizing that only way you can become righteous is by faith. Now, when Hebrews comes along, he's emphasizing the faith part. How does one live? You live by faith. Faith is the most important thing. So Paul is looking at the, 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 the end result. The end result is we want to be righteous because that's what brings salvation. That's what produces salvation. That's his focus. What is the end result? How do I get there? The author of Hebrews is looking at how should we live then? What is, what is the way that we live? Not the end result. Well, the way we live is by faith. Because righteous people live by faith. Does that make sense? Paul is saying if you want the end result of righteousness that gets you salvation, you get it there by faith. But Hebrews is saying truly righteous people live by faith. So they're kind of reversing it. But their focus is on salvation. Their focus is on salvation. That is not how Habakkuk is using it. Because he's not talking about salvation through Jesus Christ, right? That's not an understanding of the Old Testament. He knows nothing about the cross. He knows nothing about being saved from sin. 
He knows not know the Israelites know any like kind of stuff. He's not using it that way. What he's talking about is salvation physically from tyrants and armies and wicked people that oppress you. He's talking about a physical salvation. He's talking about where salvation began in the Bible, and it began with God physically coming into Egypt and physically saving Israel from the physical hands and oppression of the Egyptians and bringing them into a physical land where they are physically provided for. That's what he's talking about. That's the main focus here. So when he says the righteous will live by faith, he is talking about physical deliverance. The word righteous here comes from the Hebrew word tzedek. Tzedek can mean righteousness and it can also mean integrity. In both cases, is mostly emphasizing the idea that you are a person who lives rightly. You're a man or woman of integrity. And remember, a basic youth pastor kind of definition of integrity is that you are righteous even when nobody's looking, when no one's around. You do it because it's the right thing to do. You do it because you want to please God. And a good example of this is Joseph and Daniel. This is basically the idea, people of integrity. So who are these people? Who are the righteous? For Habakkuk and God here, the righteous are the people who are still being a people of integrity, even when everyone in Judah are scumbags. When everybody around you is taking bribes and they're corrupted and they're cheating to get a buy in college and PhDs and they're cheating to get by in the, the, the law and um, trials and CEOs. Most CEOs say that lying is necessary to build a company and deceit and cheating is. Most lawyers have said that the only way you can get to law through law school and get your cases won is through lying and deceit. So when you live in a world that's basically saying you have to lie and cheat people in order to get ahead, and if you don't, you're going to be a loser at the bottom of the totem pole, and you're not going to progress and succeed. And when you're living around you, most people just take righteousness callously, and they're like, go ahead and do it, and sleep around, and all this kind of stuff, and and for just live the way you want, you're still maintaining your integrity. You're still trying to do the right thing. And you're doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do and you want to please God. Not because you want to reward and not because you want to escape punishment. And that's who he's talking about. You people, you remnant, you're surrounded by scumbag, corrupt priests, prophets, kings, and people who filled the worship. You can't even go to church because there's temple prostitutes and idols there. And it would be so easy for you to fall in line. Most of the Protestants in church and all the Catholic Church joined the Third Reich of Hitler. And they got behind him in the genocide of the Jews and his what he was doing. And there was only a very few Christians who actually said, I'm not going to fall in line. I'm not going to fall in line. And so that's what God is saying. That's what he means by righteousness. Paul is using it in a salvation sense. God is using it in a practical, everyday living your life when everybody around you is not looking godly and it's so easy to go that route and they're making fun of you for not and it's actually way harder to be righteous now than it is to not, you're still doing it. And because you're doing it, you're poor and you're oppressed and you have nothing. That's what he means by righteousness, integrity. So in this context, he's talking about the oppressed. 
He's talking about the people who are being cheated. The people who are being passed. We think of being passed over in promotions and not being accepted in certain groups. But for them, it's that and they're being cheated in the court systems and they're being wrong and they're being overly taxed and their land is being seized. What he's saying is that's you. And the word faith here comes from the Hebrew word emunah. And the word emunah here is not the word that is typically used of faith in the Hebrew Bible. It's actually never ever really has a connotation of belief or faith, like what I believe or what I've placed my faith in. It actually carries more the idea of reliability or faithfulness, what you do. It's not the, the word faith or belief here. The emphasis is not that I believe in that or I have faith in that. The emphasis more is I am a faithful person. I am a reliable person. I am trustworthy. And so in that sense, it's saying you are people of integrity because you remain faithful. You remain faithful. And because of that, you will live. I will deliver you. When the Babylonians come, I will protect you. The people who are unrighteous, the people who follow the party line, the people who have given in to evil and wickedness, the people who have become just like the culture. They're watching all the same movies of the culture, laughing at the same jokes, entertaining themselves with the same things. They're, they're, they're talking the same way. They think the same way. They've bought into the same philosophies. They've put their hope in the same politicians and the same lawyers. They, 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 they say that they're Christians, but everything they do, their hope is in something else and their lifestyle mimics the culture. They won't survive the judgment because they're not people of integrity and they haven't remained faithful as a friend of God. But you, your life has been made miserable because you won't act and look and perform the same way that everybody in the culture does. And what they have now become entrenched in and said is okay, you said that's not okay, and they've looked at you like an idiot, and they've mocked you, and they've said you're stupid, and then they've cheated you and oppressed you as a result because you're so easy to cheat, and you're so easy to oppress. You have maintained your integrity of what is right. And you have remained faithful to me as a friend. And when that day of judgment comes, the Babylonians are going to destroy them. And you will live. You will, now, Jeremiah will add, you will go into exile. But you will live. And I will make your life fruitful in Babylon. You may not be home, but you won't be slaves in Babylon. I will make your crops produce in Babylon. You will have children in Babylon. You will build your homes in Babylon. So yes, you will be taken out of your land. But unlike Assyria, you won't be killed when the Assyrians come. And you won't be enslaved like the Assyrians did. You will just be relocated. And your life will be good in Babylon. But those, they will not. And that's how Habakkuk is using it. Habakkuk is using it in a literal, you're good people who have remained faithful to God and righteous living despite all the people around you and the way the culture acts. And because you are like that, when the judgment of God physically comes upon you, you will live. You will live. Just like I allow Lot to live when I rain down fire in Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's what Habakkuk is saying. What Paul and the author of Hebrews is going to do, they're going to say, 
in the same way that they found life and escaped the judgment of the Babylonians is the same way that you will experience eternal, everlasting life and the coming of the world judgment that's going to come one day. How will you find ultimate salvation and the coming of kingdom of God eternally and live there eternally, even though you may physically die, will you live by faith? And you place your righteousness not in your own integrity, but in the righteousness of Christ. And so that's what Paul is doing. It's a typology. He's not saying, I'm saying Habakkuk meant this. I'm saying that just like Habakkuk painted a very physical, concrete example of righteous living and experiencing life when the judgment comes. So that also applies to the spiritual judgment that is coming one day and the eternal life that you can experience if you live righteously in your faith in Christ. Does that make sense? And that's how they're using it. They're just taking the typology and pushing it to its ultimate eternal conclusion. That's what makes this powerful, is that ultimately what Habakkuk is promising is a physical life from the physical judgment. And Paul is saying, but God is also offering you a spiritual life from the spiritual judgment. And when the cosmic mountain that the prophets talk about and the cosmic mountain that the book of Revelation reveals come together, you and I, as all the nations joined with the Jewish people, will experience the physical and spiritual life that both the prophets, Habakkuk, physical, and the spiritual that Revelation and the apostles have promised. They will come together. Does that make sense? Right now, God is saying, if you live righteously, I will protect you physically, Israel. So I, you know the promises for God to prosper you and make you great. That was applied to Israel. I will, I will fulfill my promises to prosper you and make you great as a nation. But he does not make that promise to us as Christians today. He does not promise to prosper us as a nation or as a people. We cannot claim that promise because we're not Israel as a physical nation and a physical chosen people of God. But what he has promised is a spiritual life and spiritual peace and, and prosperity when it comes to hope and peace and love and joy. That's what he has promised us. But one day, when the Jesus who came in the first coming brought us f- spiritual eternal life, comes in the second coming and brings physical life, And he brings Israel, the physical promises, and the church, the spiritual promises, together on the cosmic mountain together and restores the physical and spiritual Garden of Eden, then those promises will become a reality. And Israel and you and I will both experience them. And that's where we have the already, not yet. Now, I've oversimplified those two promises big time. Um, And we'll get into those more detail as we get into Ezekiel and the Gospels. Um, But that's the main idea. So does that kind of make sense? And that's how you kind of put them together. So this is what he's promised. You people of integrity who maintain your faithfulness to me in a relationship despite the culture, its beliefs and its wickedness, I will allow you to live. And he makes that to Israel physically and he promises that to us spiritually. Now, why are they going to die? 
Unlike the wicked who will die, they will die because their appetite for sin is never satisfied. Their appetite to have more power and to get what they want is never satisfied. Never satisfied. Remember, one of the worst things that God could ever do to punish you is to give you exactly what you want. And one of the best things that he could ever do to you is allow you to get caught and punish. Chapter 2, verse 6. This is the coming to the end. But all these nations will someday taunt him and ridicule him with proverbial sayings. So he turns on Babylon and says, Babylon's going to do this to you. But don't worry, one day Babylon will be destroyed. So this takes us back to Isaiah chapter 14, where one day you will taunt the king of Babylon. They'll ridicule him. The one who accumulates what does not belong to him is as good as dead. So the one who gathers nations from around the world and brings them into his empire and says they're mine, but they're not his because they really belong to God, he is dead one day. He will die. Your, your creditors will suddenly attack. It doesn't mean you owe them money and they'll turn on you, Nebuchadnezzar. He means that you've taken their lives and destroyed them and you owe them lives and they will turn on you and take your life instead. Because you rob many countries, all who are left among the nations will rob you. You have shed human blood and committed violence against acts against the lands and cities. The one who builds his house by unjust gain is as good as dead. He does this so that he can build his nest way up high and escape the clutches of disaster. Your schemes will bring shame to your house because you have destroyed many nations. You will self-destruct. For the stones and the walls will cry out, and the wooden rafters will answer back. And the one who builds a city by bloodshed is good as dead. He who starts a town by unjust deeds, be sure of this. Yahweh who commands armies will decree the nation's efforts will go up in smoke. Your exhausting work will be for nothing. For recognition of Yahweh's sovereign majesty will fill the earth just as all the waters will fill up the sea. Everything that you thought you've accomplished and will last forever will eventually go up in smoke. But God will last forever. That's the dream that God gave Nebuchadnezzar. You think your stature is awesome and mighty and will last forever? One day it will be destroyed by a little rock that will turn a great mountain and last forever. You who force your neighbor to drink wine are as good as dead. You who make others intoxicated by forcing the drink from the bowl of your furious anger so you can look at their genitals, but you will look, become drunk with shame, not majesty. Now it is your turn to drink and expose your uncircumcised foreskin, the cup of your wine, Yahweh's, in Yahweh's right hand is coming upon you and disgrace will replace your majesty of glory. Remember the right hand of God is his justice and his salvation. For you will pay in full for your violent acts against Lebanon. Terrifying judgment will come upon you because of the way you destroy the wild animals living there. You have shed human blood and commanded, committed violent acts against lands and cities and those who live in them. What good is an idol? Why would craftsmen make it? What good is a metal image that gives misleading oracles? Why would his creator place his trust in it and make such mute, worthless things? The one who says the wood wake up is good as dead. He who says to be speech to speechless stone awake, can it give reliable guidance? It is overlaid with gold and silver, has no life's breath inside it, but Yahweh is the majestic palace, the whole earth is speechless in his presence. Now we've already seen that message in Isaiah, where Isaiah basically says, You trust in empires and money and success, but that all frivols away easily in economic collapses. 
and, and, and other government takeovers. You trust in your idols, but your idols are stupid. They're just wood. And eventually they will go into exile with you as you hold them in your hands. And they cannot protect you. So that's God's answer. I'm bringing the Babylonians and then I'll destroy them. But remember Habakkuk's question. How can you use an unrighteous evil nation to punish people of God? Did God ever answer it? No. He just said, I'm going to use the Babylonians and I'll destroy them. And the back is like, what? That's not the question, the answer to the question. Like, weren't you listening, God? You didn't answer my question. God never answered his question. This is one of the very few times where God says, because I said so. He just says, but I will punish them. And once again, we see that, that typology. God uses other nations to punish other nations. And he'll keep doing that over and over and over again. And the only hope that that cycle will break is with the cosmic mountain. The cosmic mountain and the Davidic king is the only hope that empire after empire after empire will come to an end. And so God doesn't say that. He doesn't answer the question. Now, we in hindsight, looking at multiple revelations from God, we now have multiple books we, we have a better idea of what God is doing. He's using these nations to punish them. He's using it to build our character. Ultimately, in the end, we're closer to that. We, we, we see the Spirit, Holy Spirit at work now, all these kinds of things. But even then, we still don't have a complete answer. And it still feels like, yeah, God, but Habakkuk still got a good point. And it still kind of makes you feel uncomfortable. And in that moment, God just says, it is what it is. And this is the way I work. And it's the same answer he gives to Job. I'm not going to tell you why you're suffering. I'm just telling you how you should respond when you do suffer. Now, just like with Job, he doesn't tell him why he's suffering. But he makes the point to him, you should be secure in your confidence in me when the suffering and the trials do come. And you will not be shaken when the raging sea slams against you because you've rooted your life in the rock who is me. And you should not think that you can challenge God and go against him just because you don't understand all the answers because you can't understand all the answers because you don't understand how complicated the world and history is. And that's why I govern the world not completely with justice, but I govern it with wisdom. But in the end, justice will come. So remember, that was Job's God's answer to Job. And it kind of is the same thing he's giving to Habakkuk. This is just what I'm doing. Go back and read Job, Habakkuk. But what is Habakkuk's response? This is the second section, it's chapter 3. Habakkuk says this. This is the prayer of Habakkuk, verse 1. The prophet, Yahweh, I have heard the report of what you did. I am awed, Yahweh, by what you accomplish. In our time, repeat these deeds. In our time, reveal them again. But when you cause turmoil, remember to show us mercy. God comes from Temanah. The sovereign one from Mount Paran Salah. Temana and Paran are locations in Edom. And so it's, it's south of Israel. We don't know exactly where Mount Paran is, but we do know it's in the territory of Edom. And Teman was a city in Edom. So from very far south. Now remember, that's where Mount Sinai was. And that's where Moses first encountered God. And that's where the law was given. So he says, just as you came to us at Mount Sinai, now you will come from Mount Sinai and come and deliver us. So he's using Mount Sinai language. Notice how he goes on. Your splendor covers the skies. His glory fills the earth. This is the whirlwind. He is as bright as lightning. A two-pronged lightning bolt flashes from his hand. This is his outward display of his power. 
Plagues goes before him. Pestilence marches right before him. He takes his battle position and shakes the earth. With a mere look, he frightens the nations. The ancient mountains disintegrate. The primeval hills are flattened. He travels on the ancient roads. So he uses plague language. I see the tents of Cushion, which is another word for Egypt, or it's south of Egypt, overwhelmed by trouble. The tent curtains of the land of Midian are shaking. That's where God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Is Yahweh mad at the rivers? Are you angry with the rivers? Are you raged at the sea? Remember, because that's a symbol of chaos. Is this why you climb into your chariot horse drawn by chariots? The Shekinah glory of God in the whirlwind. Your victorious chariots. Your bow is ready for action. You commission your arrows, Selah. That's a word of praise. You cause flash floods on the earth's surface. When the mountains see you, they shake. The torrential downpour sweeps through the great deep, shouts out, it lifts its hand hands high. The sun and the moon stand still in their courses. The sun and the moon are standing in, still in awe, not literally standing still, but they're just frozen in awe of the mighty things that God is doing. Just like the mountains aren't literally melting, they're just responding to God. The flashes of your arrows drive them away. The bright light of your lightning, quick spear, you fearlessly stomp on the earth. You angrily trample down the nations. You march out to deliver your people, to deliver your special servant. You strike the leader of the wicked nation, laying him open from the lower body to the neck. You pierce the heads of his warriors with a spear. They storm forward to scatter us. They shout with a joy as if they were plundering the poor with no opposition. But you trample on the sea with your horses on the surging, raging water. So you will trample the sea in the chaos. Now notice this is Exodus language. He's re-envisioning God coming from Mount Sinai to Egypt in a whirlwind of fire and lightning, the Shekinah glory. He brings the ten plagues upon Egypt, and then he devastates them with the raging waters that overtake them, and then he tramples the raging waters down and delivers his people and delivers his righteous people into salvation, a new land. So notice what Habakkuk is doing here. This is what makes his faith so amazing, and this is how we're supposed to respond. He says... I didn't get the answer to my question, but I will remember the things that you've done in the past. So he connects two things together. I remember the Exodus where you told um, Abraham in Genesis 3.15 that we would go into slavery, but you would deliver us. Hundreds, more than 400 years later, We were in slavery, and you fulfilled your promise, and you delivered us from slavery and oppression. And then you said, the righteous people of integrity in the midst of an evil corrupt culture, the new Egypt, will survive the judgment of God and live if they maintain their faithfulness to me. You promised Abraham, the faithful, that you would deliver them from the judgment that they maintain their faithfulness and integrity to you. And you did it. And you did it in an amazing, miraculous way. And now you're promising me and my righteous friends that if we remain faithful to you and maintain our integrity, you will allow us to live from through the judgment of the Babylonians. And I am envisioning another exodus one day. It may not literally, physically, politically, economically, socially look like the exodus, But spiritually, as an act of deliverance from God's hand, from judgment, it is another exodus. And he's basically taking a typology. 
But unlike us, where we mostly see the example in the prophets and the typological example is in the Gospels, Habakkuk is looking back at the days of Moses, which is like the prophets for him, the old, old Torah, and he's making a typological application for him now. And what he's doing, he's holding on to Habakkuk 2.4 and say, you made a promise to us that if we're faithful, you will deliver us from judgment. And I know I can trust in that because you've done it in the past. I look forward to a new exodus. That's what makes him so amazing. Is he okay with God emotionally right now? He's a little angry. Theologically, did he get his answers? No. Is he completely satisfied with God's answer? Probably heck no. But what does he trust in? Not that everything that he has in his mind is dealt with. Not that every question is dealt with but the reputation, the character of God. And remember, we saw this in Hosea. God never, ever, ever tells us why he loves us. Remember, if anybody tells you why they love you, their answers are pathetic. If it's anything beyond because you are mine, if it's anything based on because you're, you're skillful, you're talented, because you're incredibly artistic, because you're intelligent, you're funny, if people tell you that, what happens one day when you're no longer those things? And two, not only that, we don't always believe that we're truly funny or truly intelligent and truly skillful. And when we don't believe that, then we doubt your love. That's why the only answer that is ever satisfactory is that you belong to me and I love you because. And so God is not giving him the answers. He says in Hosea, I will deliver you because I always keep my promises and because that's my character. And so Habakkuk says, I'm not getting all my questions answered, and I'm not always satisfied with how you're doing things, God, but I do know your character, and it is good, and you've always kept your promises. And so I look at the past to remember what you are and what you've done to have hope in the future of what you will do. And that's exactly what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. Deuteronomy is making the point that it's the only book that God talks It really reveals his entire heart. And he says, love me obediently because you love me, not because you want a reward and not to escape punishment. And the other thing he says, you want to know the key to remaining faithful to me? Remember who I am and what I've done in your life. Retell the stories all the time to your children and your family of things I've done in the past. So now you and I, we don't always have our answers right now in the middle of this virus and our economic future. And there's a lot of unknowns that we're going into right now. But the key to remaining faithful to God is looking back in all the many exoduses. Remember when Jesus was standing on the mountain with Peter and James and John and the, Elijah and Moses appeared to him as by, and it says they were, he by transformed in glory. And it says he began to talk about his exodus. The cross is our new exodus. There's another exodus yet to come, the kingdom of God coming to earth. There are so many typological exoduses that God has done throughout human history. There are exoduses that he's done in your life through healings or, or family reconciliations or, or money coming out of the woodwork to pay for financial bills that you had no idea how it could happen. There are so many exoduses. And you have so, this, I, this is why I really believe that one of the most important things that we should have in worship services is testimonies. Not necessarily testimonies of how I became a Christian, but testimonies of how God got me through this. 
And so what God is, what Habakkuk is saying is, I don't have all my answers and I never will. But I can look at all the times in history as a people and in my own life where you have been good and you have kept your promises. And you just made a promise to me in 2-4, even though you didn't know what 2-4 was, that you would do the same. And I will trust in you. But then he goes on. And I won't just trust in you when everything is happy-go-lucky and comfortable in my culture. Verse 16, I listened and my stomach churned. The sound made my lips quiver. My frame went limp as if my bones were decaying and I shook as I tried to walk. I long for the day, I long for the day of distress to come upon and the people who attack us when the, so he says, I trust you, God, and I trust that you'll keep your promises, but I know that the future is going to be horribly nasty. I feel like I want to throw up right now to your answer, God. You're promising a nation to come in and destroy us in an economic collapse and people are going to die. And that makes me sick and it makes me want to throw up and it makes me tremble with fear. But when the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes in the vines, when the olive trees do not produce and the fields yield no crops, when the sheep disappear from the pen and there are no cattle in the stalls, when we go to the grocery store and there's no toilet paper and the, 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 the orange juice is gone and ramen noodles are gone and even the Brussels sprouts are completely sold out. <laughs> That's what amazed me. <laughs> when people are losing their jobs and they don't, and, and companies are telling them we may not be around when this is all over with. When, when families are collapsing, when they don't know how they're going to pay the bills, when we face a future economically that we're unknown of, Yet, all that is not there for us right now, and worse is yet to come. I will rejoice, because Yahweh will be happy. Because of Yahweh, I will be happy. Because of the God who delivers me. The sovereign Yahweh is my source of strength. He gives me the agility of a deer. He enables me to negotiate the rugged terrain. I will trust in Him. It is Him that makes me happy. Not my circumstances. Remember when Peter was walking on water? When he was walking in the water, the storm was raging, threatening to destroy him. When he was sinking in the water, the storm was raging and threatening to destroy him. When he was getting pulled into the boat by Jesus, the storm was raging and threatening to destroy him. The difference was not his circumstances of why he sunk or walked on the water. The difference is on who he was focusing on. And this is what Habakkuk is saying. Though the, the world is raging around me, and it will come down and destroy us. And like Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are taken into exile. Their family are murdered. They're kidnapped from their home, taken into a refugee camp, and brainwashed by a king. God did not protect them from all that discomfort, but did he deliver them and be with them in the midst of all that and allow them to prosper? Yes. God may not always promise you a happy-go-lucky, comfortable life. And I want that. Like Habakkuk, I tremble at losing that. But he does promise to be with you and deliver you 
and he will make you happy or in a gospel terminology, give you a peace and a hope and a joy that passes all understanding as he takes you through it. And Daniel was not spared from the trials, but he was brought through it because he found his happiness in not going with the culture of Israel and the new culture of Babylon, but finding his happiness in Yahweh. And Yahweh then, through his wisdom, gives you the ability to be agile like a deer and then to negotiate the rugged terrain and get through it all. That's what real faith, fullness to God is. And that's how one truly lives physically and eternally in God. And there's so much in the prophets that do not make sense. And there's so much that feels so harsh and uncomfortable. But do you trust God's reputation, his promises, and that he has the world in his wise hands? And if you are faithful to them, though it's not making sense and it's not comfortable, do you trust him that he'll walk along your side and help you negotiate it all and survive it all, whether physically emotionally, or spiritually, when he delivers you. That's the book of Habakkuk. It's the book of Habakkuk.